At BIMTube, our mission is clear to elevate your digital knowledge. We deep dive into exploring the value of digital and data with conversations that not only inspire, but also instigate better information management. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the BIMTube podcast. Um, today, we've got Peter Culler, who I've known for several years. So thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And and normally what, what I do, of course, I know the, the people I talk to very well, but normally what I ask is if, if you just introduce your, yourself, uh, currently w- what you do and what you want to say about yourself, but also which is, I think, very important for people listening or watching uh, this podcast, is how did you get into what you do? So you can take as long or as short as you want on that. And, th- and the reason is, as we've already discussed before, that the sort of core audience of, of this podcast are people that are maybe not from a technology, digital or data background. So it's really fascinating, I think, how people have had different journeys. So please, over to you, Peter, just introduce yourself and how, how do you do what you do? Uh, hi, I'm Peter Curler. Um, I am a senior marine litter scientist at uh, the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, or CFAS for short. And uh, what I do at the moment is mainly just focusing on automated ways to monitor uh, marine litter. And also I've got a really um, big interest in developing national action plans with um partner states that we work with uh, on the international stage so so you've got the automated monitoring side and then you've got the kind of applying that um within a, a, a national perspective so that there's very interesting um relationship between the two um i think how how i got started um i've always loved geography um i wanted to do something uh in geography um my dad told me to you know, go for something that's going to get you a job and all that sort of stuff. Um, I didn't think at the time, and I think quite wrong now, but I didn't think geography would get me a job. So then I, there's a new thing called GIS, Geographic Information Systems. And so I thought I'd, uh, it sounds pretty good, you know, computers and maps, you know, that, that could go somewhere. That might be something important. Um, so I did that as an undergrad. Um, and then I kind of um, got a job in in london and uh that's kind of where i met you i think Stephen, uh part of the kind of gis community um we always had kind of similar i think views on on the gis and in, in, in that you know it's a part of a bigger machine sort of thing um and then yeah so i worked there for until in that industry in in local government in central london all the way up until 2018 when um I got a job in uh, CFAS. Um, it's quite a career change from GIS manager at the time to uh, marine litter scientist or marine pollution scientist. And I think that started way back in 2008. Um, I did some traveling around the world and I ended up in the South Pacific and um, sailing between islands. I could see that there was litter everywhere. And that would that really bothered me. Uh, like, how does it get there? It's you know you're hundreds or thousands of miles away from the nearest um, civilization, um, and yet there is huge amounts of litter washing up on beaches. And then and then also seeing the damage and the impact and the that that caused to local populations as well as as well as wildlife. So I came back and I you know I continued my GIS thing you know. But I attended all the ocean events I could possibly manage to attend in London, which is quite fortunate because London has a lot of events like that. Um, you know, met a few people, a few inspiring characters. Um, and uh, then I had the idea where I wanted to actually apply for Royal Geographic Society grant, um, which was, you know, you get a Land Rover and a bunch of money to do a to do um, an ex- um expedition of some description the idea was to drive along the um 
West African coastline and, uh, you know, sample litter on the way to highlight that the damage it causes to societies of, of different kinds and that sort of thing, but also to, you know, maybe provide a bit of an, knowledge to science. Um, then I realized that you, it would take a very long time to do all that monitoring manually. Um, and I, I had an interest in drones back in 2015 and a friend who did a lot of machine learning, this new thing, newfangled thing called machine learning. Um, of course, by that point, it, to people in the field, it was it's quite an old thing, but to a lot of other people, it's quite a new thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so we applied it. We did a little test run. It seemed to work quite well, you know, flying a drone over a beach. And uh, yeah, so then it turned out that I couldn't get the money to uh, go around the West African coast, but I managed to get some money together to go around the UK coastline. And we captured lots of images. Um, we founded a charity called the Plastic Tide. Um, we got citizen scientists to annotate that litter um, that we that the images found, and then that went into a proof of concept algorithm. And uh, yeah, basically um, trying to scale that idea up. That's where CFAS got interested, and that's how I ended up partly in in uh, in CFAS. A whole kind of career change. Um, from London all the way out here to Lowestoft in um, Suffolk on the east coast of the UK, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's. A few people are still awake there, Stephen. That's a good. I am um, no, no, uh, uh, no. That's that's a good journey. So yeah, so it was nearly Africa, and then we've got. But but you, but you but you were off. Um, like you say, you observed initially these things far away in the first instance. So I mean, it's um. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it always bothered me anyway. Like, you know, litter, I think it bothers many people, um, but, it, but it always did bother me. It's just the fact that, you know, seeing it in pristine environments where it, you know, really should not be, um, and then trying to figure out why it got there, how it got there, what was causing it. Um, I think I think that really kind of bothered me for the following, geez, what, like 10 years after that? Um, you know, I applied, <laughs> it was... When I was away traveling, there was something called the global financial crisis, um, which in that we got when I got back, I didn't really have many <laughs> job prospects. Um, I actually applied to go on a tour ship as crew or, uh, you know, uh, the Royal Borough Kensington Council GIS analyst and um, the GIS analyst job came up and that's what I did. So, <laughs> but so you were nearly you were nearly a singer. On a cruise ship? No, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, it could was... have been. What could have been? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it could have been. I could have been a world-renowned um, cruise ship entertainer. No. So, so time, Stephen. There's still time. There's still time, and I, you can always have a career diversion. Of course, people famously have multiple careers now as well. So you've got still got time once you've cleaned up um, the oceans. Here. But priorities, I, I, I dare say it's best to stick with what you're doing at the moment. So, th- so thanks, Peter. That was a fantastic overview for, from what what you've done and where you are now. And I guess we will obviously get into some of the technology. Like I say, this is for an audience maybe not so technically literate, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. that's core to what you do and it's um, pivotal and essential. So this may seem a crazy question, but just to, what is machine learning? You mentioned machine learning. So just for the, the novice among us, before we start talking about maybe some of the techniques that you use, what, 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 what is machine learning at a fundamental level? Let's take a quick break. Do you need help where to start with BIM and the ISO 19650 series of standards? If so, then our partners BIM Enable can help. Not only do they provide training, they can also offer implementation services and a strategic overview for your organisation with a roadmap of what to do. They specialise in information management of all kinds, and BIM is just part of this, but also asset information management. So why don't you go to bimenable.com? That's bimenable.com. So it's, I mean, I'll give the the high-level definition. I think it's a form of AI. So when people use artificial intelligence or AI, they often 
interchange that with machine learning. I think it's it's just important to realize that machine learning is a subset of AI. It's not AI as a whole. And essentially, it's um, it's a it's a very loosely approximates a kind of neural network. Um, I think it it might annoy hardcore machine learners to say that it kind of mimics a human brain, but it but it's it's a very loose approximation that you can. Uh, there's different forms of it, uh, but in essence, you can train an algorithm to automatically uh, detect um, items, whatever it is that you train it on, and uh, that can that can range from objects to cars to litter, as I'm doing, um, and you just keep feeding it examples some algorithms can learn from the image you put in it learns to kind of segmentate itself and recognize what different objects are but in essence it uh, goes through a process and it and it produces uh, an output of what it has been trained to identify um and yeah i, I think that's that probably the highest level of definition. yeah yeah. But maybe maybe something we could just mention is, is the concept of training. I, again, we I mean we probably talk hours about the detail, and I, I I agree with that point. But just just the concept of training comes up quite. Could you just just I mean maybe you've just described it, but the concept of giving giving in your case more more images and then confidence levels is that just very brief overview of what the sort of training is in machine. Yeah, learning. so so um, you can if you forget the pun, you can get rubbish in and rubbish out with algorithms right so machine learning algorithms it it's very dependent on what the training material is and how well annotated that training material is so so you essentially just uh, in our case you feed it lots of images and then you um demarcate if you will um the litter in those images and you say this is litter of this type and then you feed that into the algorithm it then um learns from that input and then tries to replicate those those uh, results and data that it's never seen before and that's the real advantage because of the way the process works and i won't pretend to understand the details of of how that machine learning process works but the way it works is that it can then identify um you know in my case litter in images it's not seen before and the the confidence that it's able to do that is dependent on that input data. So it needs as much variance of examples of that item as possible. The more variance you give it, the better it can it can identify that item. Um, but interestingly, it's also it can also be biased by your own biases, um, and some of them you may not be aware of. Um, so so I think in some me medical diagnoses, for example, with to do with skin conditions a lot of the training data was on caucasian skin uh and so it didn't it didn't uh, the algorithms weren't quite effective in darker skin tones um so you know it's important to realize that that it and it's a very interesting kind of reflection of us as it were you know i think machine learning is this big evil thing or the, potentially a big evil thing that can change and take over the world but it's just it's, it's just a reflection of of us and the biases that we have when we train it if we're not careful um you know the more complex an object is the more you need to train it as i've said so so car a car generally will be of a certain shape with four wheels um whereas a litter item can be of all different shapes and sizes and colors um and then also it needs to learn the backgrounds as well so if you train an algorithm on litter on sandy beaches, it will be very good at detecting litter on sandy beaches because that's what it's learned from the input imagery. But it won't be very good if it suddenly sees litter on a pebble beach or a rocky beach. So um, there's all sorts of kind of considerations when when you're doing it. But I think that's the yeah. Th thanks, Peter. I, I'm I'm just thinking about the. I mean, there's hundreds of different permutations, aren't there? Is is that where? Your the you described it as demark demarcating or or the different objects features is that where you've had citizen scientists get involved uh, yeah. volunteers in other words who have helped with that yeah so the annotation so so quite often particularly if it's a, like we've been describing um, litter where there's lots of different shapes and sizes you need lots and lots of examples 
and you have to sit there and you have to draw around those examples often. As I said, there are versions in which you know you can ask the algorithm to to kind of come up with your own as well, sort of unsupervised. But the supervised classification is where you sit down and you um, you know you say that this is an illicit item. And and what we did with the citizen scientist side because that takes a lot of time. We did an experiment. We we outsourced that to the public to draw um, basically just bounding boxes around the litter items, um, and then that was fed into an algorithm, and uh, that that could train that algorithm into detecting it. I think we had eight different classes um, at that time, or seven, because one was unknown, which kind of isn't really a class. But um, yeah, so you you do have to kind of digitize it. But um, there are companies now. There's lots and lots of companies that. Um, that basically apologies um there's lots of companies that basically have uh that provide that as a service so they'll annotate for you um and then you kind of set the parameters you say what you need annotating and then you you release them on it but in those things particularly with complex subjects um qa qc is really important yeah quality assurance in that yeah, thank you to discriminate. And what 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 is what is the main um, types? Again, interested, genuinely interested in the t the topic. What what's the, the most prevalent type of litter? I mean, I I wouldn't have any idea. What 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 is there out there? It's a really good question. Um, it it just depends where you are, really. Um, I think I would be fairly safe in saying that in most cases it's plastic fragments. So it's where larger bits of plastic have just fragmented into smaller bits, right? So, you know, I think I think um, there was some quote somewhere that said a, a plastic bottle could fragment into a trillion pieces of microplastics. So it it you know it breaks down and that breaks down and that breaks down. It doesn't with plastics they don't dissolve, they don't you know disappear. They just break into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. You know, like a like a bit of glass that you smash into like little pieces and you smash up those pieces and you grind those pieces up and it's pretty good so that's uh yeah yeah so forever it's plastic and do, do they i mean again this might be obvious for, for us but maybe for the people listening or watching the is is the one of the biggest challenges is then it bioaccumulates so the animals eat it is there is that studied i know maybe you're actually looking at the litter but as far as like the parallel consequences is there evidence oh, that yeah. animals actually eat it or is that something else that's going on about, about studying the animals yeah so the the impacts of it um so you've got something called macroplastics which tends to be you know generally speaking above five millimeters i mean you've got like meso and macro and micro and nano but effectively above five millimeters it's considered um, macroplastics and then below five millimeters, it's considered microplastics, right? Uh, the macroplastics, the larger bits of plastic, I mean, you know, you can get entangled. Um, a lot of ghost gear is quite popular now, discourse in the, you know, in the general media, and um, that's just discarded or lost fishing gear made of plastic. Problem is it never breaks down. And what that does is it, it can potentially continue to catch fish. Um, so that impacts on the commercial yields and the and the and the livelihoods of people because the, the you know, more fish um, get caught in those nets than could have been caught normally. Obviously, you get the really charismatic megafauna, the big there's dolphins and the whales that get caught up in the plastic or they eat the plastic. So you get there's entanglement, there's ingestion. So the animals eat it. They feel it fills the stomach up and they can't pass it through the digestive system. So they basically feel fuller and fuller. And so they don't eat because they feel stuffed because they've got a belly full of plastic, quite literally. And then they weaken and they're more susceptible to diseases. And then quite often they they, they die because of that, um, unfortunately. Um, so that's the kind of macro level. And then also can, plastics can get snared up in propellers and cause all sorts of havoc with um, navigation and, and, uh, and uh, maritime industries. But then... Um, there's also a lot of research coming out that they're quite effective disease vectors. Um, on some of them, you can get little little micro atmospheres or little protected bubbles, which can transport a um, either invasive species or some sort of disease from one place to another, which which wouldn't have really been possible before because of the because how durable plastics are. 
And then you, if you're going down to the micro level, um, there's a lot of evidence and research that we do that shows that um, chemicals and contaminants absorb or get, you know, basically get attracted to plastics because that's a petrochemical and it attracts other petrochemicals. And then there's some evidence that when you eat that, because, you know, you're inhaling microplastics now, it's in the dust, it's everywhere, right? I mean, it, from micro all the way down to nano, which is, you know, uh, I forget what the exact size ranges are, but um, super tiny, basically. And then um, that at that level, it can pass, potentially pass through the gut barrier and into your system. And there's still a lot of research going on about, you know, what does that do to our you know, hormones to our organs, that that sort of stuff. So that's very much a kind of active field of research at the moment. But it is known that, that it can absorb chemicals and it can release them. Um, it's been demonstrated in labs, at least, that that um, microplastics can affect the behaviours of fish larvae and um, that sort of thing. Um, but it's quite hard to you know, prove that for certain in, in the marine environment, right? So, you know, for example, it's hard to tell if the chemicals that are generally in the environment anyway, were they the cause of that fish getting ill? Or was it from the microplastics that that fish consumed or that fish larvae consumed? So they've demonstrated in the lab where they can control all the all those variables. But in, in, real, in the real world, I think that there's just... I think there is evidence showing that it does it does but it's it's much harder to kind of causally prove that link great i mean not great i'm just listening great for your explanation terrible for what you're describing but i i'm yeah i, I was just thinking about some of the other um that it's so big you know i mean literally we're talking at a global level aren't we i was just thinking of the other the other information data sets of, of what what you use i mean again maybe for people listening and watching because that there'll be other data sets like ocean currents and that. Could, could you just give a quick overview of what other information sets or data that you you call on, whether it's ocean or oceanographic or whatever, to, just to give a sense of what's going on here? Because there's a lot of modelling of. I mean, to, again, to us, obviously, but what was the other data sets you draw on? Well, it's, a, it's a huge amount, right, Stephen? There's there's um and that's that's something that um, I think a lot of scientists are trying to get a grip grip off this you know kind of quote unquote big data uh, issue where they the, there's a whole plethora of data that have access to potentially um that would be really useful um but we don't necessarily have the infrastructure to access it and the you know the, the software to access it and the, you know and, and the licenses to access it because it's you know, it's a lot of data to to be handling. But uh, you know, things like, as you say, ocean currents. There's there's a lot of remote sensing data around water temperature, water color. Um, you know, there's lots of data around salinity of, of water. Um, there's um, atmospheric conditions. There's um, emissions. There's all sorts of very relevant things to. Uh, plastics into climate as well and, and um, you know there's a few papers including some that we produced that show that you know a lot of climate change there's a link cause between plastic pollution and climate change as well um you know not least through the burning like a lot of a lot of waste is burnt so that generates a lot of carcinogenic toxins when plastics burnt so that's a lesson do not burn plastics they release a lot of nasty things into the air um yeah, so the, 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 yeah, there's a whole range of data from satellite to sensor-based data to um, you know scientific survey data. It's it's all um, and it's I, and I don't think we're always so great at kind of bringing all that together into one one place sort of thing. So let's take a quick break. Don't forget, you can catch up on all our podcasts in video and audio by visiting our website at bim.tube. That's B-I-M dot T-U-B-E. Yeah, it's very difficult, just the awareness as well, isn't it, to have a catalogue? You know, I'm, I'm sure there are some different sources, but there, are, there isn't sort of a global universal 
catalogue of geographic information uh, that I'm aware of. So I think that's probably half the battle often. Again, I, I don't know about your sector, but generally, I you did just to pick something up, if I can, you mentioned QAQC, and I, I skipped over that. So apologies. I didn't, again, for maybe for people new, new to sort of information management, governance of data and things, what 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 is checked i mean again there might be obvious things to us but what what is checked what are some of the fundamental things that are checked for data quality uh well qaqc i mean that's a very fancy acronym that makes you sound really good um, that's just quality control and quality assurance right and um a lot of that is you know you you'll get errors you if you outsource and if if the thing that you're annotating is particularly complex like litter um you know we're trying with a lot of categories like uh, 96 um, categories um and what that means is that there's a lot of variance and if you present a litter item to someone the two it's called it like kind of interrated error some someone will say it's this x and the other person will say it's y and that will confuse the algorithm um and so you need to have person A and person B saying it is the same object. Um, otherwise, the training data is, is you know, you're going to get really low accuracy levels and, and confidence levels. So you have to have a kind of a golden truth, uh, a kind of what is this item? Um, and again, you know, it's not always clean cut, particularly in litter. Um, there's all sorts of challenges um, that you have to be aware of. So, for example, um, there's there's... The way we classify items can be dependent on its use or can be dependent on what it is. Um, you know, for example, plastic container, pretty unmistakable, right? It's like a it's like a container with a, a lid and you can pour stuff out of it. But then, you know, quite often what can happen is people will cut holes in the sides of those containers and then it becomes a whelk pot. Uh, and then that item, you know, then potentially becomes discarded fishing gear. And if you if you train the algorithm and tell them, no, that's a plastic pot, and there's lots of these converted whelk pots in the environment, what you're going to find is that you then present that data to um, you know, an environmental officer or a policy uh, expert, and you say, hey, you've got a lot of plastic containers in your environment. And so then they introduce some sort of policy or some sort of preventative nature, uh, preventative, preventative policy for that, and um, potentially you find it misses the it misses the mark. You know, um, it targets the plastic container industry rather than the fishing industry where the litter came from. So, so there's all there's all those kinds of nuances and differences, and the and the more complex the subject matter is, that the more complex they get. And so you need to have a very solid quality control process and that involves you know really understanding what it is that you're that you're annotating um you know providing really kind of clear definitions of what is and what isn't an object as much as you can and then when you know when the annotators whether that's your own organization or if you if another organization is you 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 have to kind of go through and sample all of that um annotation to really understand how accurately it's been that data is just going into the algorithm itself, right? Before the algorithm does anything, you need to make sure that you're providing it really quality, quality assured, and, and um, you know, robust data sets. Kidding. I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, no, absolutely, no, no, because you're you're living at this data quality challenge or and i think certainly that the bim in the bim tube means better information management i think that's it isn't it if 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 we are involved in in data and you're obviously a data scientist in that 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 way now it's um most people aren't you know the <laughs> most people that is not something they give much thought about if any thought about and then when it is discussed um it, the importance perhaps isn't clear like we should have quality information and or data and people say well yeah obviously but then <laughs> the potential complexity and i like the example you gave of you know it was a a bottle for example or or and and now it's a fishing equipment and what the semantics around it so it's, it's all very very relevant it's a similar parallel with things like bim the other context building information modeling for the built environment the semantics of what things are and 
depends who you're asking. So I think mm. it's all very relevant. And, uh, and, and of course, metadata, uh, just very, very briefly, I know we were sort of kind of talking about it there, but what, what, me what metadata do you use? Do you have a metadata catalog? Uh, again, this isn't standard practice for a lot of people, believe it or not, at least not by name. So what, what, what do you do about metadata? Oh, we, I mean, we capture it sometime. So, so for the beaches, it's very important when you do a survey to understand what the aspect is, you know, where was the beach facing, um, what kind of material it is, is it used regularly? Um, there's a whole kind of manual monitoring protocol around that, right? And so what we want to do is we want to capture that as part of the, the, uh, automated monitoring you want to you want to have that metadata associated with that data set right um but you'll have lots of things in, in terms of metadata you'll you'll uh with the drone imagery you'll you'll have the gps position and all that that's captured as part of it we you, with the annotations they're kind of associated with the image so you have a kind of uh, i mean i'm not a machine learning programmer but i understand that you know, um, it will be referred to, so you'll have an annotation, and that will be localized to a particular part of that image where that annotation was made. Um, whether that's box-wise, which is just drawing a box-wise, or polygonal, which is where you draw a shape around to match the, the size of uh, the, the item itself. Um, but it, it, that plays a really key role um, in it, and there's also um, coming up with standard terms and terminologies for everything is also incredibly important. And, and there's some work generally in the machine learning field to start doing that. So, you know, that if it's a spoon, everyone calls it a spoon rather than a, you know, an oval shaped object, a stick with an oval or a, a shiny silver um, <laughs> feeding implement, you know, there's all different type, different ways that people will describe yeah. the same. And it's the same thing in litter as well. You know, pe people describe plastic wrapping in 1500 different ways um so is so on on that theme and just out of interest is there an internationally recognized classification for litter or are you effectively making it or is there is there a sort of a un for example recognized classification? oh yeah so it's a really good question so there is um there's a unit unep united nations environment program protocol uh, for litter and it's bait and that's what we call them we call them kind of marinas the protocols and then the, um europe has its own one called ospar which is kind of connecting it you can you can map it over to the U, uh, the unep one um and obviously we use that because it's you know northeast atlantic and we're in the northeast atlantic but there's a there's a whole plethora of other protocols around the world um and and quite often they're designed for different aims. Some are designed more for policy, so there's a lot more classes, there's a lot more detail, and then some are also just designed for outreach, so it's a lot simpler. Uh, but you don't really have the kind of real detail in 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 the classifications. And you know, you know, we use we use our OSPAR one in our algorithm, but what we're very clear on and what's very important is that every region and pretty much in most cases most nations have their own litter fingerprints as it were so there are general items you know the most common ones like i said plastic fragments um the other real common ones are single use items you know sweet wrappers um takeaway containers the, um, cans drink bottles those sorts of things those tend to be the, the most common ones but countries will have their own products that are only available in that country or in that region um you know a common one is like little drinking sachets uh, which in the Caribbean you get a lot, but you don't get them here. So they're literally like a, a plastic pouch of water. Mm. And you just kind of bite the corner off or tear the corner off and drink it. So it's not even a bottle. It's just like a little plastic pouch. And you don't get them You don't get them in Europe, but you get them in the Caribbean and I think in some African countries as well as I'm, I'm sure in other places around the world. But they can cause particular issues as they you find lots of them in the environment. So, you know, it's an that in itself is something that um, is going to be is an important part of the algorithm development is the recognition that it needs to be contextualized to its the locations being deployed in essentially yeah yeah that, that makes perfect sense that there'll be local and unique um 
items again that trend that concept transcends across lots of different sectors you know similar obviously we're talking about very important things here saving the environment but on sort of more mundane things that i used to get more involved with in the rail sector for example it'd be the same thing you get unique there's some things are common some things are unique and then having to communicate i just out of interest because you, you mentioned policy a few times what are the like the outputs or what i mean is either maps or dashboards or whatever it is reports what what are things that are produced just even the class of them maybe not even specific examples but what are the outputs that are produced by you or your your colleagues that are used for policy what do they look like again it depends depends where you are like um so ospar is quite a well-developed and ospar is the oslo paris convention is just like basically um northwestern European countries or Northwestern Atlantic countries, um, essentially, is what OSPAR does. And, you know, in many cases, we agree environmental standards and we measure using indicators against those environmental standards. Um, so one of the indicators, for example, is in plastic contaminants or plastic content to, in full Mars. Um, the other one is um, number of litter items per 100 meters. Um, as well so so that's the you, you get those indicators and that shows the level of that contaminant in that environment so i've just given you examples for plastics i can't really tell you what examples there are for other pollutants but they you know they do exist there's there's a convention for mercury for example which which kind of states um you know unsafe levels for mercury and what you should do about about that and and how to report it and all that sort of stuff so that's more at the more developed end and then in the developing end where those kind of systems aren't in place and, it, and it's, you know, it could be quite basic reporting, like top, top 10 items, top 10 plastic items. I mean, that's universal, right? Um, um, and that's quite useful in terms of just targeting uh, those areas. Um, you know, we, we would find in certain countries, we found metal, metal bottle caps were extremely prevalent and that was related to the behavior that I think, based on the local knowledge is that a lot of people just assume that because it's a metal bottle cap, it will degrade in the environment. Yeah, which it will potentially. I mean, quite often they've got plastic infills on the underneath of the cap, which don't degrade, but then it takes a long time for that metal to degrade. And in enough concentrations, that can have an environmental impact as well. Um, but it's also a valuable source of metals that could be recycled. So you know, that's quite helpful in then being able to design um, solutions to that. So, you know, you could have a container return scheme as a popular one, which includes the bottle cap. You know, sometimes you have to state that, you know, return the bottle and the bottle cap, and then you get, um, you know, money back. So when you buy the bottle, you pay like a deposit included in the price of that drink or whatever. And then when you return that bottle, whoever returns that bottle, they get that um, kind of deposit back. And so that's that's kind of proven as quite an effective way to, um, you know, ensure that bottles returned back in or recycled. Um, but yeah, so that, I mean that that's that's an example of the policy that that might come out of it. So from the very um, developed, where you've got frameworks, you're monitoring frameworks, you've got kind of indicators, you've got targets for, you know, how good you want the environment to be. Um, so your EU has kind of um, environmental standards or good environmental standards that it will define it will say you know for a healthy beach or a healthy system you need to have below x number of items per 100 meters um and then you know the monitoring can then report on that um you know another example is with the plastic bag ban in the uk after that was introduced um we found particularly on sea floor litter there was a marked reduction in the amount of plastic bags that came up so that's the other aspect of it if you're going to introduce a policy you need to then measure if it's worked and you know you can't manage what you can't measure so if you don't get that baseline um you could say it's meaningless you can't say that you've reduced litter by 20 percent or because you don't know what the state was before you made the intervention and then it's also you need to be careful about what you're measuring is actually what's happening um you know 
if there is a big reduction in plastic bags, is it causally linked to the policy that was implemented? And that's really important to know. I mean, some people might think, ah, oh, yeah, whatever, it's it's a reduction, it's fine. But um, if you, because those interventions cost money, and they and they often it re, it involves the public doing something. You know, you want to make sure that you can show that that effort, that investment from time, from the public and money to get it done has actually had an impact. It's actually made a difference. And and so that's where you have to be very, that's where the science comes in. You have to really think about the indicators and how you're monitoring it and what you're monitoring. You know, um, and there's all sorts of different considerations around that. And there's a whole kind of group in the marine litter world, um, a group of experts that that uh, come together and and think about these problems and produce kind of guidance and, and that so yeah th- th- thanks pete I was, I was thinking about and you said it there that's where the science comes in that's exactly what i was going to comment so you took the words out of my mouth there where again in some other domains i tend to work in it's not people don't that conversation about are things statistically valid you know we'll talk a lot about outcomes and benefits and adding value of of using information in a smarter way in other sectors but then that scientific approach of it pr- probably isn't there. Let's put it that way. So again, you're literally a scientist. So it's like, we need the metrics. We need to, is this st- statistically valid? If I can even say it. And I, I think that's a, because for people that don't know me, I did science as well. I, I actually studied environmental biology, believe it or not. So this is most interesting to me, but I think that's the thing where that that's often lost. You know, you'll get data people, uh, maybe not data scientists per se, but lots of people working with data and information who basically aren't scientists. I'm not saying they should be, but they don't have a scientific background. So that that sort of going back to basics is is missing. There's probably nothing for you to add other than a comment on that. I'm, I'm just backing you up on the scientific thing. I mean, it's... It, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think the other, the other challenge is that in a lot of the developing world, um, who, who are often more vulnerable to the negative impacts of litter right it causes all sorts of havoc uh in that area and i think you know on a, on a brief tangent you get a lot of island states that that um you know that have tourists or have a you know obviously have an industry um bottling lots of plastic bottles will go to that for, to support that for drinks and stuff but once that content is consumed that plastic cannot be moved off the island because it's too expensive to move it off the island, which is crazy. I mean, if a, a bottle of water, it's just water, you drink that water on this island at X or whatever island you want to call it, and then it's stuck there. It can't move off it. The plastic itself, which is from petroleum, is, wor- is worth less than the water that you've just drunk that you could potentially get from spring or from a, you know, it, and so, and so they, in some cases, and I've seen it myself, you can get a mountain of of plastic bottles because they can't be transported off the island. So, so I mean, I I digress slightly there, but related to that is, you know, um, a lot of developing states don't have a lot of money to implement these huge you know, these monitoring programs of the size that we have in global north that they have. Uh, even then, it's quite difficult to get the funding to monitor properly. Um, hence, this is my, this is what I breathe, live and breathe, right, with the automated monitoring. So there's a lot of cost in terms of people's times and people's effort and finance to monitor the environment. And there's the automated monitoring, automated AI, particularly machine learning, offers a very powerful way to kind of automate and scale a lot of this challenge. Um, and you know you'll get you'll get in um, in developing states like they just don't have the people or the capacity to monitor, so they can't. You, you don't get that baseline to start with, or it's very difficult to get that baseline. And and what you don't want to do is just not have any action. On the flip side, you don't want to not do anything because you can't monitor it because clearly something needs to be done about it. So. There's a challenge. There's a there's a challenge there where there's a lot of kind of look, just get it, just start doing something. Um, 
And this is where kind of innovative technologies around AI and that, um, for example, but also other other areas, other ways of automating things, even just better data sets, better, easier to deploy um, databases and main and good licensing conditions for those databases that favor developing states, I think is really important to once they get that information to then store that information and share that information effectively without needing an army of database experts to you know, and and tens of thousands of dollars to to um, make five changes to it. You know, um, that really inhibits a lot of this kind of um, data and intelligence gathering in this kind of in, in the resource constrained environment. You know, such as such as. So that's that's a very long way around it. But essentially, what I'm saying is that rapid surveys are also quite effective way of, of getting those baselines and we've done those in the past we've done those in the past but there's some really important points in in developing states around you know developing resilient technologies that can that can operate in those challenging conditions really effectively because most of them are designed for you know london offices you know or, or us offices or know, bulgarian offices you know play Developed nations where there's a lot of resources and, and know-how to, to to do it. So I mean, it, and and that and that's an important thing to say is that there's the ability is there. It's just quite often it's the capacity. It's just this, you know, there, there might be in some cases there might be 150 plus islands in the nation, and there's only maybe three people. In the environment department to look after all of that, you know, you, you and, and you're not really going to have a lot of time to go out and monitor things. So, yeah, it's a good point because then it comes down to priorities or, or is perceived priority and and long term view. I think what would be interesting because we, we don't have long left, got maybe ten minutes. Um, is is just so I think we've set the scene. What I guess on a a positive side or, or a solution side what's <clears throat> and i know there'll be many many things but what sort of solutions are, are happening like what's being done are there maybe two or three examples of clear solutions you've alluded to, to some but maybe specific examples of what either governments have done or individuals have done to to improve things it'd be great to hear about that if you if you could oh yeah so so there's the un treaty on plastic pollution um which will create the first legally binding um treaty for member states um to tackle litter so at the moment largely it's been kind of voluntarily based um you know a few regions have implemented binding legislation but lo mostly it's it's just been volunteer based and and um you know, that's currently under discussion maybe two years maybe longer that that will um hopefully come to fruition so that's really exciting that's really good and that involves all stakeholders from private sector to NGOs to scientists to everything so I think that's a really positive way forward and that's something that that's that's needed um you know I think a lot of people at least in the marine litter in area marine debris area think that the challenge is akin to climate change simply because this the cross-sectoral nature of waste and litter is it doesn't respect any boundaries it's it's all over the place and i think there's lots of examples of how um you know uh, there are solutions that are coming up so for example there's there's way, there's uh, products that involve less plastics um reductions in packaging which a lot of companies are implementing which is really good to see for plastic packaging um there's a lot more awareness of the sustainability side of it and i think that's a really important mark shift in our relationship with our planet is that you know in many ways i see us as you know children who have had all these toys and we've been playing with them and we suddenly realize that actually we've caused quite a bit of damage uh, when we've been playing with them and now we're trying to figure out well you know how do we you know play with them or how do we use them differently in a in, in a way that's not going to damage where we live and i think there's there's probably quite a lot of parallels to that in the wider world and in, in that you know we've got all these products up until now we've we thought the world was infinite we could keep pumping stuff into it whether that's waste or exhausts or co2 and now we're kind of realizing that actually 
it's no longer a fringe hippie, you know, save hug a tree thing. You know, there's a serious, as there always has been, a serious um, financial considerations and business considerations in, you know, you're not going to have a business if you destroy your market and the market exists in the planet. So I think that's a really positive shift, but I think we need to do more as always. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, lots of cleanup operations like Seabin and, um, you know, the Ocean Cleanup Crew. Um, there's, um, they've gone through lots of challenges in, in offering them. But I think it's it's a multi... It's a multi-pronged approach, right? So, you know, monitoring is a is a key element. It's what I do a lot of, but I don't want everyone to spend lots and lots of money to, money in monitoring because then that doesn't then they can't spend that money in prevent prevention and cleanup. So, it's really important to turn the tap off before you then start to, you know, um, clean up the environment. And there's lots of really good movements into that area, and I think the one of the most basic elements, um, Stephen, in, in doing this is, is the perception of, of our environment and our relationship with that. And I think a lot of yeah. good things flows flow will flow from a healthier um, and, and more sustainable view of that, I think. Great. Thank you. I, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, I think the even when the topic hasn't directly been sustainability or the circular economy in in some ways on ev- with everybody I've spoken with it's uh, come up at some point which you'd be pleased to know particularly things like United Nations sustainability development goals and the ultimate mm-hmm. sort of purpose purposes of uh, and why. So I think the messaging certainly is coming through and things like ESG environmental so social and, go- and corporate governance type targets as being a requirement. So it's you know it, it, it's happening. It's happening. What what I don't hear enough about or is um, about the condition of the oceans, though. That's the first time it's come up directly. Is talking with you today. So the implication is land, no doubt, or drinking water. Um, we don't have much time left. So normally, what I ask. So thank you first of all for your time. Um, amazing. We're not quite done because what, normally what I ask people is. If people are interested in this topic, where would you suggest they can go on the internet? I'm sure there are a hundred websites, but maybe just the top five places you recommend someone that's probably new to this topic. Are there any that spring to mind? Uh, in terms of uh, marine litter? Yeah, um, and maybe getting involved is the, the implication, but I, I guess that's what I'm asking directly. Yeah, just to learn more and then maybe how they might participate or volunteer would, would be great as well. well so, so there's things like... Uh, um, 